When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you've ever gotten a nasopharyngeal test for COVID, or preferably watched someone else get one, you know that the swab they use to get a sample from your nose is really long, like six inches long, so it can reach way back into your head. Some people call this swab the brain tickler. Going that far up your nose requires a very specialized kind of tool, a swab that's thin, flexible, strong, and with a breakaway tip to send out the sample for testing. When COVID first ramped up in America last year, and we were trying to ramp up testing too, America's health authorities quickly realized they'd need millions of this specific type of swab, which provided the most accurate test results. Last night, uh, Admiral Giro, would you please come up and just talk a little bit about the tremendous success that's been made on testing from where we started? Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. So as of close of business yesterday, we have been able to perform in the United States over 894,000 tests. So highly significantly increased every single day. Those tests are performed- In March 2020, Admiral Brett Giroir of the then newly assembled Coronavirus Task Force took to the podium during a briefing in the White House Rose Garden. Two, uh, one last point. Um, uh, I've learned more about nasal swabs than I ever thought I would want to learn in my entire life. But it was a very big thing that the FDA approved last week, self-swab of your nose. So literally put a swab, certain kind of swab, foam swab in your nose, put it in a plastic bag, give it in and drop it. This not only increases the speed... Admiral Giroir struck a positive tone that day. But behind the scenes, he was scrambling. Among the important things he had learned about swabs were that he didn't have nearly enough of them on hand and that he wasn't sure how he would get more of them, and that he didn't even know exactly who made them. It became very apparent to him that the nasopharyngeal swab was one of the biggest crisis points inside the supply chain. Olivia Carville is a reporter with Bloomberg News. This was where we had a lot of issues and we needed to get as many nasopharyngeal swabs as we could. So he asked his advisors and the experts in the room, how many of these nasopharyngeal swabs do we have in the national stockpile? And they came back saying, we had none. So then he asked, who manufactures them? And no one knew. Admiral Giroir would soon learn that the answer was waiting for him in rural Maine, where a sleepy little family-held company called Puritan had been in business for 100 years. Puritan made the special kind of swabs that America needed. In fact, they were the only American company that made them. The problem was, Puritan was barely holding itself together. Not because of the sudden new demand for its swabs, but because its two controlling partners were cousins who, by all indications, just hated each other's guts and were engaged in a bitter legal dispute that was ripping the company apart. What happens when your snoozy niche product suddenly becomes the thing everybody needs right now? But your family feud is threatening to ruin your do-or-die moment.
I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism. Today on the show, Swabber Barons, the story of Puritan. How did you first become aware of this story? I've lived in the U.S. now for about three years, and my boyfriend is actually from a very small town in Millinocket, Maine, and we spent the summer up there. We kind of escaped New York City to get away from COVID, and while I was up in Millinocket, we were chatting about this company that's based close to his hometown, which was making all of the swabs used for COVID testing, and that's when I first heard about Puritan. When Olivia Carville started digging a little, it turned out she'd stumbled on a fascinating story. Puritan was the only company in the United States and one of only two companies in the world that made the medical swabs required for those deep-in-your-nose COVID tests. Did you get the sense that a lot of people knew that just one company in the United States was making all of these swabs? No, I felt like no one really knew where the swabs were coming from. There was a lot of media coverage around a shortage in swabs and how we had supply chain issues. But I don't feel like wider public really understood our total dependence on this one business. Since its origins in Saginaw, Michigan in 1919, Puritan Medical Products has become the nation's principal manufacturer of tipped applicators, tongue depressors, and non-medical disposable merchandise. It began as the Minto Toothpick Company, based in Michigan, but it quickly moved to Guilford, Maine to be closer to large forests of the white birch trees needed to make its featured product, which, as you might have guessed, was mint toothpicks. They were making toothpicks for years, and then they started diversifying into other disposable wood items. So think popsicle sticks or wooden forks or tongue depressors. Those tongue depressors, which the company began making in 1948, marked an entry into medical woodenware. And then from there, they kind of like moved into more medical products and then finally ended up with producing swabs. And when they were initially making swabs, they were made from wood. And then as the technology advanced and clinicians realized that wood could interfere with test results, they started to make them with plastic. Puritan's revolutionary flocking process for its HydroFlock and PureFlock Ultra Tips is a closely guarded secret and patent pending in the US and Europe. This evolution from making everything out of wood to making some things out of plastic created a literal divide in the company. The Minto Toothpicks name was retired, and the company got split into two new sister organizations. One side, now named Hardwood Products Company, kept making wood stuff and didn't change a whole lot as the decades passed. It still sells things like wooden toothpicks, wooden kebab skewers, and wooden corn dog holders. The other side of the company, now called Puritan, went after the medical products niche and became a specialist in plastic swabs. These are two very different industries, and the two divisions had to operate in very different ways. If you're making medical products, you're constantly adapting to new trends and requirements. So Puritan was forced to change with the times, while hardwood products, right next door there in Guilford, remained rooted in the past. That worked for a while, but when this family company came into the hands of the third generation, trouble began. 
One cousin, Timothy Template, was running the Puritan operation, making plastic swabs. Our products reach globally. Uh, we have a big presence in China. We have a big presence in India. We have a big presence in South America. Another cousin, James Cartwright, was in charge of the hardwood product side, making wooden corn dog sticks. So these are really uh, proprietary machinery, and uh, there's no patent on The patent is secrecy. And the two cousins, it seems, didn't like each other much. The whole town is aware of the fact that these two men just don't get on. And when I was asking townsfolk, why? Why don't they like each other? Or when did this feud begin? What's the origins of it? A lot of people had a lot of rumours, but there wasn't really anyone who could tell me exactly how or why this started. So some people said that they had heard it started with a fist fight at the age of six because they grew up in homes very close to one another. But it really boils down to the fact that these two men have very different personalities. Whatever the interpersonal dynamic between these two cousins is, it seems natural that there would be tensions between their two separate sides of the business. The hardwood side didn't make as much money The machines that it used didn't need to be as advanced technologically, and it was just kind of a steady business, whereas the Puritan side felt like it was being held back by the hardwood side because there were a lot of advances being made in the medical industry, and it wanted to invest to get new technology to make the business bigger, to compete more in this field. They wanted state-of-the-art machines, which the hardwood side just didn't really need. So they'd kind of grown into two very separate businesses run by the same family, run by the same factory in this really small town. Keeping these two wildly different operations under one umbrella was a recipe for conflict. And eventually, conflict arrived. In February 2020, Timothy, the cousin running Puritan, filed a lawsuit to dissolve ownership of the Umbrella Corporation, citing irreconcilable differences a move that James, the cousin running the hardwood products company, was opposed to. Anyone could read this document, and it didn't really paint a good picture of what was happening behind the scenes. One statement from it said that the deadlock had created a dangerous situation, leaving the companies close to a point where something is going to break. Another statement said Cartwright and Template no longer speak, no longer make joint decisions, and essentially unable even to be in the same room together. Normally, this kind of feud between cousins wouldn't have been of much interest to anyone outside Guilford, Maine. But then, three weeks after Timothy filed his lawsuit, something extraordinary happened. Something that pushed this company's small-scale drama onto a very large stage. We continue to procure millions of swabs, test collectors. I have something here, just happen to have It's a swab. Looks innocent. Not very complicated. Anybody like to see what it looks like? Should I open it? Does everybody? More on that when we come back. If you like this show, please consider supporting us with a Slate Plus membership. It's a dollar for the first month. You get no ads on any Slate podcasts. You get unlimited reading on the Slate website, never hitting the paywall. You support our podcast. This show would not be possible without your support. Slate Plus helps keep this show going. To sign up and get started, go to slate.com slash thrilling plus.
When COVID hit the United States in 2020, the country needed to ramp up testing fast. But the preferred technique for getting test samples involved one very specific tool, which happened to be in very short supply. Reporter Olivia Carville. It's a six-inch swab that has to travel right up your nose into an area roughly halfway between your ears called the nasopharynx. These devices are just so specialized that they have to be sturdy enough to get right up your nasal canal to the nasopharynx area, but soft enough to not damage the inside of your nose and also have technology on the tip that's advanced enough to collect the cells that you need. So once you extract the swab, it also has to have an indent to snap it off and put it in a vial that can then be sealed and sent off for testing. Pre-pandemic, we were probably using around a million nasopharyngeal swabs in any given year. And during the pandemic, we were using one to two million a day. That is shocking. Yeah, it's like a just kind of explosive demand. Let's talk about testing. As I mentioned, you're known as the testing czar. There's an inspector general report from your agency, the HHS, out just this morning, just a few minutes ago. It found a, quote, severe shortage in testing kits at hospitals. Why is that? And and how can you rectify that? Well, uh, we've done over 1.67. A newly formed coronavirus task force had determined that testing would be crucial. Admiral Brett Giroir was one of the task force members, and he soon spotted a concerning bottleneck. He didn't have enough swabs, and he had no idea how to get more of them. And again, we are not going to have tens of millions of tests this week, but we will have a million-plus tests, plus all the thousands of hospitals who do their own tests. That should be sufficient to take care of the So he assigned his team to kind of do essentially an analysis of the market to tell him who makes them, how many people make them, how fast can they make them. And they started really just Googling swab manufacturers around the world and based in America as well. And they were calling the chief executives of all of these companies that sell swabs. And they initially thought there were about a dozen. But after calling them, they realized that who they thought were manufacturers were actually only distributors. And all of these companies were buying the swabs from either Puritan or Copan. And that's when he realized that there are only two companies in the world that can make the devices. Copan, which is based in Italy, in an area that was being really heavily hit by COVID at the time, and it was outside US borders, so the government didn't really have the power to to try and take hold of any of their supply. And then this very small company based in Guildford, Maine, called Puritan. And that's when he realized our almost total dependence on Puritan. Swabs just hadn't been a sexy part of the medical devices market before. They require very specialized machinery to manufacture. And Copan and Puritan hold patents that they've been very aggressive in defending, which meant there was a swab duopoly. And the American swab maker was in a bit of a shambles. It was within a couple of weeks that Timothy Templet actually disclosed to White House officials that there was a feud between him and his cousin and there was an ongoing lawsuit between the both of them. So now there was this insane situation where the U.S. government and kind of the health of everyone in America was reliant on a very small family-owned company that was in danger of shutting down over internal squabbles. When you look at 
this company and how long it's existed, which is over 100 years. And literally three weeks before COVID hit, this lawsuit was filed to dissolve ownership. Failure was just not an option here. And Admiral Jawai actually told me over the phone that if the cousins weren't able to set aside their animosities, the government would have had to have come in and either buy one of them out or buy the company out, even if it was at an outrageous price, because there was nothing else that we could do. Admiral Jawai got on a conference call with them both and really asked and pleaded with them, like, please set aside any differences because this is bigger than all of us and just asked if they could please come together to help America in its time of need. And they got off that call, and that's when they really started to ramp up their supply. ...be used by healthcare workers, but Merck recently announced plans to donate 500,000 masks, USPS, 500,000 masks, uh, and a little company called Puritan in Maine is actually in the business now of manufacturing swabs. So businesses large and small all across America are rising uh, to the challenge. As the president noted, he will... And they did that through government funding. They've received just about $400 million from the government to build new factories and increase their production. They went from having one facility based in Guildford to four facilities based across the U.S. now. The ramp-up worked. Puritan saved the day. President Trump even came to visit Guilford, Maine, the first time anything like that had ever happened. We had a lot of people. We got off Air Force One and we came and the roads were packed. Five deep, ten deep in some cases. I have to be very careful because I have the fake news back there. They'll say it was only two deep. <laughs> there were some areas where it was only one deep and they'll end up putting me on the front page. But we had some fantastic crowd. And I just want to thank you all. You're very special people. And this is a great plant. And it's doing a phenomenal job. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I also want to You'd think that success might have made things copacetic. But it seems the two cousins aren't actually any happier with each other now than they were before their company rescued America. Based on court documents, unfortunately, the feud and the tension between them didn't really dissipate with the pandemic or with the importance of the business. Behind closed doors, the fight continued to rage and maybe just the same amount of ferocity as what it was before. Within the court case, they continued to fight each other every step of the way. One of the cousins wanted to put the whole case on hold, the other objected. One of the cousins wanted to shift the case to a different county, the other objected. One of the cousins wanted to ask the other cousin to sell his stake. The other objected. This seems like a bizarre situation, where you have a company that's crucial to the national interest and it's tripping over its own shoelaces. But in another sense, this story is far from unique, because family-held companies very often start to fall apart by the time they reach the third generation. There's even a term for it, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. The founder comes from nothing toiling in his shirt sleeves, and creates a successful enterprise. The second generation tends the enterprise, acutely aware of the founder's hard work. Then the third generation squanders the enterprise, putting things right back where they started. By the time you get to the third generation, which is like the cousin consortium, where the cousins don't grow up in the same household, they didn't watch the business being built from nothing. They weren't there when the employees were hired. They don't have that same connect to the business that 
their fathers and their grandfather may have had to it. So this idea of the curse of the third generation, this isn't just a Puritan problem. It's a well-known issue that when it hits the cousins, there's a lot of difficulties because there's a lot of different opinions as to where the future of the business should go. Puritan has avoided the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves problem so far, in part because of this fluke spike in demand. The question is, where will the business go from here? In an interview with a local news channel, Timothy Template remained optimistic that the business would keep booming. Oh, I think that there's always going to be room for testing around the globe. And even though there is a vaccine, people are going to test. And, um, and there's always another virus out there lurching that may be around that we're going to be prepared for. Puritan's future isn't just about the feuding cousins at the top. A lot of the company's employees are from Guilford and the surrounding towns. And they come from families who have also worked for Puritan for generations. Here's Timothy Template again in a Puritan promotional video. And most of the employees, believe it or not, come from a 25-mile square radius from the plant facility. And a lot of them today are third-generation workers, which means that their grandfather and their father worked here. And they, in turn, worked here once they graduated from high school. And some people have graduated from college with degrees in engineering who now work for us as well. As other COVID testing methods have emerged as reliable alternatives to the nasopharyngeal swab, Puritan has tried to corner the market on the swabs used in those tests, too. But at a certain point, if testing for respiratory viruses continues to be a major industry, competition will surely enter the marketplace. You've seen a little bit of creativity by some smaller players, like some group of clinicians and academics and doctors joined forces to try and make different kinds of swabs. You've also seen other companies like US Cotton flip some of its machines to produce swabs for COVID testing, and they're making millions of swabs a month now too. So you do have competitors coming up, but Puritan is kind of perfectly poised to really dominate in this market in the coming years. The one thing that might hold it back? Blood is thicker than swabs. I'm told that both cousins are very stubborn and aren't willing to back down. So from you know my understanding of speaking to people close to them, I think that this is going to continue until there's an answer in the court as to what's going to happen to the future of the business. I wonder if they'd be happier if they'd just stuck with making toothpicks. That's our show for today. Next week on the show, the company that invented watching movies on your couch struggles to keep up in the streaming wars. It's not streaming, it's HBO, except it's streaming. That's next week on Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism. This week's episode was produced by Jess Miller and Cleo Levin. Technical direction from Merritt Jacob. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Asha Saluja is managing producer. I'm Seth Stevenson. See you next week.